Hi, and welcome to Screens in Focus podcast, where we share and connect as we spotlight our favorite shows and movies. I'm Diana. I'm Brittany. And this is episode 12. Today, we'll be reviewing season three, episodes five and six of The Walking Dead with the lens of devotion. Before we dive in, how are you doing today, Diana? <laughs> I'm doing great, Brittany. Um, I'm so excited because I crossed something off my bucket list. What was it? It was riding a horse. Yes, that was so much fun. It was fun. It was <laughs> beautiful in Bodega Bay, and I'm so glad we got a chance to go. Totally. And how is your week or your day going? It's going really well. The Warriors won game one against New Orleans last night, and I am so excited. Yay, that's <laughs> awesome. Yes, I love the Warriors. Go Warriors! <laughs> but first, a recap. Okay, season three, episode five, Say the Word. In Woodbury, the governor brushes his little girl's hair, who ends up being a walker, and the townspeople have a barbecue during the day and in the evening watch a gladiator performance put on by Merle, Martinez, and some chained walkers, while families cheer them on. Crazy town. (laughs) At the prison, Glenn is digging graves and talks with Herschel, while Rick is reeling from Lori's death and grabs an axe and heads inside to slaughter some walkers. Herschel says the baby's fine, but they need food, and Daryl and Maggie head out to find some. Back at Woodbury, Michonne discovers a book of names that belongs to the governor, finds her katana, and a bunch of caged walkers. She doesn't trust the governor and tries to convince Andrea that this place is not what it seems, but ends up leaving on her own. Daryl and Maggie come back with supplies and feed the baby. Daryl says they should name the baby Little Ass Kicker. (laughs) Rick looks for Lori's body, but Walker has devoured it and Rick has a meltdown and then hears a phone ring and picks it up to say hello? Season 3, Episode 6, Hounded. This episode was written by Scott Gimple. Just thought I'd point that out. So, Rick is continuing to grieve. He keeps getting phone calls and asks these people if his group can join them. He eventually hears Lori's voice and they find closure, even if it is all in his mind. He eventually gathers himself and joins the group and holds his baby for the first time. Andrea and the governor hook up. Gross! Andrea, you can do so much better! (laughs) Anyway, Merle and a few of the Woodbury guys are out looking for Michonne, but she kills all of them, except for Merle. It's totally badass. And Merle eventually ends up finding Maggie and Glenn while they're on a run and takes them back to Woodbury. But Michonne finds the prison and meets Rick. Okay, Diana, so where did you see the theme of devotion in these two episodes? I saw it with Glenn and his devotion to the group. After the deaths that happened in the last episode, he's digging graves because that's what you do when somebody you care for has died. You give them a burial, something to memorialize, to pay tribute to. It's a part of his grief. It's his process in dealing with a loss that he is experiencing. And then he also talks with Herschel about his thoughts and his feelings, telling him that he wishes that they had killed all the inmates when they first saw him. This way, none of their group would be dead. I mean, Herschel tells him that he thinks Axel and Oscar are okay guys, but Glenn continues to talk about T-Dog and what a great guy he was. Funny because, Brittany, you had wondered why they didn't elaborate on his story more. But here we have Glenn giving a little bit of insight to T-Dog. Maybe a little too late, but I do appreciate Glenn's sentiment because that is what you do when people pass away. You talk about those things you remember. And Glenn remembers that when people started evacuating, that T-Dog drove his van to senior centers, picking them up to save them, anybody who needed a ride. And then 
saving Glenn a thousand times, and he says that T-Dog wasn't just a good guy, but the best. He also confides to Herschel that he knows it isn't right to think this way, but that he would trade a number of people just to save one of theirs, which I thought was very interesting because I don't blame him for feeling this way. I'd feel the same way. Also, he goes into the prison to look for Rick and finds him very distraught, and he tries to convince him to come out. But Rick is a mess and isn't comprehending anything at the moment and throws Glenn against the wall and then away from him. And I felt so sorry for Glenn. And I hope that Rick will apologize at some point in the future for his behavior because you just don't treat friends that way. Glenn seems pretty forgiving, so maybe he doesn't take it personally. I don't recall if anything comes of this in the next episodes, but either way, I appreciate Glenn's devotion to his family, as he calls them. Yes, and I saw something similar with Daryl. So he has a lot of devotion to the group. He's the first one to ask, we got anything a baby can eat? After Herschel states the baby is healthy, but it will die without formula, Daryl immediately says, oh no. We ain't losing anybody else, especially her. I'm going for a run. He's walking to his bike within seconds. He is so devoted to this little human he doesn't even know yet. It's so heartwarming. Also, his conversation with Carl clearly shows his devotion. He opens up and tells Carl about how his own mom died in a fire. And maybe this is the first person in this group that Daryl has told this story to. It's a surprisingly natural conversation, and he doesn't force the idea of how to grieve onto Carl. All he wants to do is to highlight his support and his empathy for what Carl may be experiencing. It's very sweet to see their connection over this, and Carl definitely appreciates it too. Lastly, I feel like he was rewarded for his devotion by finding Carol. I'm so glad that he was the one to find her. Yeah, me too. Everybody might be tired of me talking about Rick, but I have to say Rick is devoted to his family and this group. And this is why I keep watching the show. Anyone that is willing to fight so hard for their family and friends is someone that I adore and respect and can relate to. My family and friends are so important to me, and I would kick some booty to save them too. (laughs) Rick was truly devoted to Lori, and that is why he had these hallucinations. He talks to her and tells her he loved her and made a deal with himself to keep her alive and couldn't open the door and risk it. The people that are gone kind of haunt him, not in a bad haunting way like, ooh, I'm a ghost, but (laughs) they haunt him internally. That is why the voices he hears on the phone are all from the past. I think it is hard for him to lose anybody. That is why he pleads with them on the phone to please allow him and his group to join them. He just wants his group to be safe. Okay, Brittany, where else did you see the theme of devotion? I saw it with Michonne, and there are three parts to my point about Michonne. First, what I think is so glaringly obvious is Michonne's devotion to the truth and trusting her instincts because of this. She tells the governor, people with nothing to hide don't usually feel the need to say so when he is insistently trying to prove that she can trust him. She also notices and tells Andrea, no one who comes here leaves. You can only leave when they make you. Secondly, I think Robert Kirkman and the show writers are so devoted to Michonne's character and creating a woman of color with such integrity, just scintillating intelligence and beautiful strength. Though we haven't seen a prolific amount of her in season three yet, 
People who have watched the show know that she is consistently on the moral side of things, and she continuously stays level-headed. She has also had a lot of reasons to lose her mind, and carries a lot of weight on her shoulders by being such a big contributor when it comes to planning and also defending. However, it is a rare sight to see Michonne in a weak state of mind. She is a much appreciated woman of color on screen. Lastly, this is more of a side note than anything, but I think it's too important to gloss over. The governor's comments about Michonne make me so uncomfortable, as well as the differences between the dialogue he shares with her versus what he says behind her back and how his tone subtly transforms. He says things like, she's all personality, that one clearly making it known that one, he's not a fan of her personality, he's being sarcastic, and for that matter, not her looks either. When he is feeding Andrea negativity about Michonne, he says, she makes people uncomfortable. Some people want her to leave and I don't want that, but she put my back up against a wall. I'm saying what works out there doesn't work in here. We're not barbarians, you know. You can't write a script like this and not think about the words a white man uses to discuss a black woman. Words or phrases like, she makes people uncomfortable. Barbaric. She put my back up against a wall. All the blame is on Michonne, and people of color are always blamed for our own misfortunes. I think with things like Black Lives Matter or Me Too, many of America is uncomfortable with it because it doesn't affect them directly. So a lot of people think that they're making it up or making it sound worse than it actually is. When a new video of a police shooting and killing a black man comes out, people are quick to say, oh, but there must be more to the story. What was he doing before that video started? Not many people have been found guilty of killing these young black men either. Anyway, I think that the phrases about Michonne coming from the governor is a devotion to the character of the governor as well, and the East Coast or South of our country too, possibly indicative of any cultural biases that may exist there. The governor speaks as if he really does approve of Michonne and even compliments her on how good she is with taking down walkers. But you know that she does make him uncomfortable, not just for the fact that Michonne knows he's garbage <laughs> and can see through the smoke show he's created. It's also because in pre-apocalyptic times, she probably would have still made him uncomfortable without her katana. Okay, Diana, what are other things you noticed in these two episodes? I notice that the governor is crazy. <laughs> he is combing his walker daughter Penny's hair and out comes a big clump of her hair along with her scalp. <laughs> her scalp. <laughs> and Penny growls and tries to eat him. And Governor Daddy is, now, now, Penny, I still love you, and puts a hood over her head. Wow. Maybe he thinks that somehow she will come back with Milton's research, but this little walker girl is decomposing, and she will not be in good shape if she does come back. I suppose the governor has a certain sense of devotion to his daughter, too. I also noticed that Andrea has a bad taste in men. I guess she has been on the road for eight months, but still, she must have this bad boy syndrome. First Shane and now the governor. I know it's Andrea's journey, but it's hard to comprehend. When she sees the gladiator fight with Merle and Martinez and the walkers, she says this is barbaric. And I agreed with her. But then the following day, she says she liked it. And that is what bothered her, that she enjoyed it. Really, Andrea? 
Did they give you the juice? <laughs> she is somehow infatuated with the governor. Maybe because he has power and has created this community and she wants to feel safe. Somehow she is buying everything that he says. She even lets her closest friend walk out the gates, which is shocking. I would feel betrayed if I were Michonne. But Andrea is her own person and will figure out things out in due time. What other things did you notice in these episodes, Brittany? I noticed that Michonne and Rick's current relationship makes so much more sense to me now that I'm re-watching. She enters his life right as he lost the first love of his life, Lori. It's very cool how they eventually develop feelings for each other after becoming friends and fighting alongside each other and getting through so much intense shit together. I loved seeing them meet again at the end of episode six. I know that some people were confused by their relationship when it first came about, but in retrospect, their love story totally makes sense. Also, on the phone, Jim's voice asks Rick, how many people have you killed? And I just realized that ever since then, Rick begins asking new people this question to get a gauge on their moral compass. And I know the phone calls were Rick's way of grieving and making sense of everything that has happened. And I love that such purposeful, positive things came out of it. He received closure with Lori and found a new way of getting to know people who may want to join their group. I think this is a foreshadowing of how many new people enter Rick in the group's lives because he is asking if his group can join another. And as we see in future seasons, they let more and more people into their group or vice versa. They're joining others' communities. It's a good reminder that change is always around the corner and we must adjust to our surroundings in order to survive and move forward. And real quick... When Rick tells Carl, she looks like you, I laughed and said, true, because she ain't gonna look like you, Rick. <laughs> okay, Diana, it's time for why we love Rick. Why do you love Rick? I love that Rick loves that baby. I say baby because they haven't named her yet. Toward the end of the episode, he emerges from the boiler room, all cleaned up and with hope. He needed time to think and mourn and regroup. He goes to Herschel and takes the baby from him and holds her and looks up toward the light, then kisses her head and a tear comes down his face. It doesn't matter if this is his baby or not. He loves her. And for that, I love him. Totally. Why do you love Rick, Brittany? I love that his subconscious acknowledged that he thought he had time with Lori, like a lot of us think we have time, and he now recognizes that he should have said it and not focused on anything else because she was there right in front of him. I know they had that smile, and I'm so happy that they had that moment, but I think they both would have loved having a little bit more, and don't we all? He receives mm -hmm. his closure, and he gathers the strength to go back to the group because his subconscious forced him to finally talk about this out loud. I appreciate that because that's real life. You can't avoid your insecurities, your mistakes, your regrets, whatever. You can certainly try, but it will hinder your progress and you will find yourself right back where you started and or even more broken than before. You have to face it eventually, take accountability, be okay with what has happened and finally move on. It's the only way that we grow. So I really appreciated that. Okay, Diana, it's time to talk about what we are currently watching. What are you currently watching? Well, I think we should start with Fear the Walking Dead, uh, Season 4, Episode 2, Another Day in the Diamond. So we're back with the main group, 
and we still don't know what happened during the last year or so. One of the guys mentioned it's been 365 days that they have been there. So not sure how long it took them to get there. All we know is that Madison is working and not sleeping very much. And Nick is afraid to go out of their compound, which is odd because he was the one that wasn't fearful of these walkers. He walked among them more often than anyone else ever did. Maybe it's not the walkers, but I'm not sure what it is. He had flashbacks of blowing up the bridge from last season, but we don't know anymore right now. So it will be interesting to see what that's all about. And I can't believe this little girl conned them all. Why didn't Victor see this coming? A con man should be able to see a con coming about, <laughs> right? Anyway, I'm looking forward to seeing Morgan, John, and... Al. Al. Thank you for that. Yes. What did you think of the episode? I think it's cool how they started living in a baseball diamond and that they also mentioned how many people are there. Yeah. There's 42 people in the compound. But Mel reminds me of the whole Negan complex. Like there's so, and I know that there's so many missing parts of the story. So maybe we'll find out more. But when yeah. he showed up and he just talked about how their group is not going to make it and how he eventually will just take what's yeah. theirs, it reminded me of Negan and a combination of the garbage people. They say we take, we don't, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I guess that just means there's more to find out for this season, right? Like they're leaving out a lot of missing parts of the story so that we can keep watching and figure out what happened. Yeah. So that's I think it's good. Yeah. Yeah. What else, what else are you watching? I am just watching my usual, The Voice, American Idol, Survivor, my Real Housewives show. Um, but I did uh, get to watch a few other things. I watched Westworld. Have mm-hmm. you... Are you watching it? Have you seen it? I've seen it. My uncle okay. got me to watching it. And one of his gamer tags is Westworld. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to watch it because it looks so intriguing. And so... For anyone that isn't watching it, it's on HBO. It's a science fiction thriller about a technological advanced Old West themed resort where people pay to live out their fantasies and interact with hosts who don't realize they aren't real and don't have any power until the creator makes an update and some changes begin to occur among the host. This is based on the Michael Crichton 1973 movie by the same name and quite a few famous people, but who I recognize right off with Stephen Ogg, who played Simon on The Walking Dead. (laughs) So that was funny. Uh, Movies, A Few Good Men was on the other night. It was on TV, and this is one of my favorite movies to watch. I love a good legal drama, and even better when it ties to the military. It was made in 1992. And it is one of the top 10 repeated movies on television. Wow. Yeah. It stars Tom Cruise, Demi Moore, Jack Nicholson, Kevin Pollack, uh, Kevin Bacon, and Kiefer Sutherland, among <laughs> others. It's adapted to screen by Aaron Sorkin, who also wrote the play, which I thought was kind of interesting really cool. in itself. Yeah, that's probably why I like it. I also watched All the Money in the World last night, um, Netflix DVD. It's a crime thriller directed by Ridley Scott, starring Michelle Williams, Christopher Plummer, and Mark Wahlberg. It's based on true events about a 16-year-old John Paul Getty III being kidnapped in 1973 Rome by an organized crime ring and his oil tycoon billionaire grandfather, J. Paul Getty, richest man in the world at the time refuses to pay the ransom of $17 million. It's an interesting movie, 
Great performances. Christopher Plummer played J. Paul Getty after taking over the role from Kevin Spacey. He did an incredible job with having to reshoot all his scenes a month before the film was released. He's 88 years old. Well done, Mr. Plummer. Impressive work. That's wild. Yeah. Wow. What about you? What are you watching? I am watching, you know me, a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Catching up on all my regular shows, but The Handmaid's Tale came back for season two. I still want to see that. Highly recommend yeah, I want to see that. Yes. So it's one of the best TV show adaptions from a mm-hmm. novel that I have seen. It is insane that this story was written so long ago, and it feels like someone could have written it in 2017. Every issue science fiction presents is something that is reflective of current times. So I just, I find it so interesting. Also, I was sobbing on Friday night watching the second episode. <gasps> I have to watch it. Just the acting and the parallels to our current political situation is so powerful. So I highly recommend it to anyone. Just pay for Hulu, get your seven-day free trial, and run through <laughs> that's that. That's what I need to do. <laughs> uh. um, also, the second season of 3%, it's a Portuguese show, came out, and it's another dystopian futuristic movie, right? So people are fighting to be part of the 3% that lives a good life away from the rest of the population. So it's very interesting. It kind of reminds me of The Hunger Games. I think that everyone should watch it too. It's a really good show, and it surprised me. And then for movies, I watched a lot because we, Diane and I, went on our retreat for work and I was alone in my room for a little bit. So I just watched a bunch of movies. So Uh that's when you had time to do all this. I'm like, when did she have time to watch all these movies? (laughs) So I watched The Look of Silence. It's an Indonesian documentary film about the Indonesian killings of 1965 to 1966. It was nominated for Best Documentary Feature at the 88th Academy Awards. But even though it didn't win... It has won 70 awards from other organizations. Out of 74 nominations, this film won 70 of them. That is incredible to me. Wow. So this man confronts the men who killed his brother. A lot of people were killed during the purge of communists. He remains anonymous, but it's a really compelling film, and I'm glad I watched it. I also watched a dark song. This woman goes through crazy ritualistic acts in order to speak to her guardian angel to be granted one wish. At first, I was super skeptical of this, and some parts were even laughable. Like, I just thought, this is so ridiculous. But I love the ending, and I love what she asks for. I also watched Sun Dogs. So after getting rejected from the Marine Corps for a third or fourth time, this kind of quirky dude, he goes on an adventure with his new friend. And this was Jennifer Morrison's directorial debut. And I love all the actors involved. Michael Angarano, uh, I actually loved a movie he was in a long time ago called Little Secrets. <laughs> Melissa Benoist from Glee and Supergirl. And Allison Janney, whose favorite role of mine is the high school counselor in 10 Things I Hate About You. <laughs> <laughs> also, Ed O'Neill from uh, Modern Family is on there. And then I also watched Seeing Allred. It's a documentary about lawyer Gloria Allred. She has represented women who have accused powerful men of sexual assault, like Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, even our president. <laughs> she also has fought for rights of the LGBTQIA community and transgender people. In the end, she basically tells us that her only fear is that she won't live long enough to do all the work she wants to do. And I think the main reason for stories like these are for women to be heard more, sympathized with, and most of all believed in. 
I also watched Bright Star. It is set in the early 1800s. It's loosely based on the love story of a poet, John Keats, and a fashion designer, Fanny Braun. And this was based on the last three years of his life. So I really love period pieces, and I thought that the two actors had really good chemistry. Lastly, I watched I Am Not a Serial Killer. <laughs> it's really it's really interesting, actually. So this teenager in a small Midwestern town, he's been diagnosed as sociopath, but generally he seems like a good person. So his mom is actually the town's medical examiner, so he's sometimes in the room with her when she's embalming and examining dead bodies. But he witnesses one of his neighbors committing a murder and then follows him as he commits more. So he tries to stop this murder himself, but the ending is so surprising, so I really love this movie. All right, Diana, it is time for, and the award goes to, what was your favorite moment, character, or quote from these two episodes? My favorite moment was with Daryl and Carl. I love that Daryl shared his story about losing his mom with Carl. I think he truly regards this group as his family now. So I felt as though he were trying to relieve some of Carl's pain by letting him know he lost his mom tragically when he was young, too. After listening to Daryl's story, Carl says, sorry about your mom. And Daryl says, sorry about yours. It was perfect. <laughs> What about you? Who does your award go to? I loved the scene when Herschel is talking to Rick about Lori and tells him she was sorry for the things that happened. She told me that. She planned on telling you. Take your time, whatever you need. You carried us. You didn't let us give up. And you got us here. He acknowledges all Rick has done for their newfound family. And he lets him know that it's okay that he's grieving because it's normal. And because if anyone is allowed to take a back seat for a bit, it's Rick. I think people who are typically the caretakers or leaders let their self-care take a back seat. And sometimes others don't notice this. Or in the very least, they don't acknowledge it. And we just had a staff retreat where we learned more about emotional intelligence. And I think Herschel possesses great empathy and interpersonal relationship skills. He would score on the high end for sure. (laughs) So Herschel shows compassion, sympathy, and loyalty during a really rough time for Rick. And this reminds me of times my friends and family have stepped in. And I just feel so lucky to have people like Herschel in my own life. You are lucky. That's <laughs> awesome. And I love Herschel too. He is. He's great. That's our show. Thanks for tuning in. We are grateful you tuned in and we hope something we said today resonated with you and gave you a chuckle, some happiness, some positivity, or some inspiration. Please subscribe to our podcast and tell a friend. We would love more members of our TV club. Rate and review the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. We need your feedback. Please, please, please. (laughs) We'll be uploading new episodes every Tuesday. The next show will be on Season 3, Episodes 7 and 8. You can find our blog at the link listed in our description. See you next time. Bye. Bye.